The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. More than 40% of people in their 40s and 50s have both an aging parent and a child under the age of 21. Caring for people in multiple generations demands time, love, attention, and more. Welcome to Caught Between Generations with your host, Dr. Merrill Griff. Our program will bring you the information you need as a family caregiver for everyone for whom you care, with guest experts and resources to help you keep sane and organized. Now, here is Dr. Merrill Griff. Hi, welcome to Call Between Generations. I'm so glad you decided to join me today. We're going to talk today about not quitting or maybe quitting. Maybe that's a good decision to make or maybe changing direction. So with us today is Elizabeth Crook. She is the author of The Achiever's Guide to What's Next, Live Large. And I want to tell you, I've read this book and it's really a very exciting and innovative book. I was not surprised at all to learn that it has earned a lot of praise from people like Jane Pauley, who stated that, quote, this is the book 2007. 17 has been waiting for. I highly recommend it. And also Jack Canfield, who said that Elizabeth Crook and Live Large is one of the most thrilling ways to go after what you want to accomplish and make a difference in the world. He stated Elizabeth Crook is the real deal and delivers great value in this book. Elizabeth is the CEO of Orchard Advisors, and she's been so for over 20 years. And today we have the pleasure at Corp between generations of welcoming her to our show. So Elizabeth, what does it really mean to live large? Well, first of all, thank you, Merle. Living large is when we are living in a way that connects our passions, our talents, our skills, and our experiences together. Too many people live in ways that deny what their real talents are and never feel quite that sense of, wow, this is big. That's what living large means. Wow. So I, I, it seemed to me when I read the book, Elizabeth, and this may not be correct, that, that it's primarily for people who have been successful and then want to move on to something else. So what if I feel like I've not been successful? I mean, it, it is. It, can I use this information? You know, I think anybody can use the information because we've all been successful in one way. If you're sitting up and reading the book or on a book or a Kindle and we are going to bring out an audible edition, then as they say, if you can sit up and read, then you have been successful at something in your life. And it is for people who either don't feel like that they're satisfied with what they're doing or feel like they've sucked out all the juice of what they're doing. One woman said... When I looked at my boss's job, I said, that's not the job I want. Where do I want to be? 
people whose industries may have been downsized, people who have been out of the workforce because they're caring for young children or caring for an aging parent. I have a client who's a film producer who took time off from uh, to care for her mother until her death, and now she's really questioning if she wants to go back in quite the same way that she did before. So we've been working together, and she's working through the book to, to reinterpret what her core talents are and what really gives her joy. So there are a lot of Elizabeth self-help books out there. So I, I and I'm not being critical of self-help books, but but I'd like our listeners to understand what makes this book different because I think there's kind of a prejudice at times to say, "Ah, oh, this is another self-help book." You know, please, I've read 5 of them. None of them help me at all. So right. why which true. So I why know. do you think why, why do you think your book is different? What makes it different? I think my book is different, number one, because I'm on the journey along with everybody else. I frequently, as they say, have to eat my own dog food. Uh, Second, I think it's different because I give readers explorations, because I believe that my readers have the answers, and that my role, and it's my role when I'm working with companies or whether I'm working with individuals, is to frame questions in a way that people have a higher and higher level of insight. And we have 18 different explorations in the book, and people can download those explorations so they can print it out on big sheets of paper or they can work on it on their computer, but engages them in a conversation with themselves. It doesn't just leave you with thought-provoking questions and what do I do next? It, it takes you through that conversation with yourself and then ultimately leads you into an action plan because we can come to insights, but if we don't know what we're going to do different tomorrow, nothing's going to change. You know, the reason I really like that, Elizabeth, is not only because you have the action plan, but, you know, as a therapist, I used to tell um, my clients, you know, my job is not only to help you through this particular situation, but to give you the skills so that when you come into the situation again, you know how to handle it. And and I think your book does that. It kind of also teaches someone the process um, for looking at a situation and trying to figure out, you know, what the strengths are and, and what to do. So um, I really like that piece. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. And I think that too many times we we want to believe that somehow we'll do therapy. And goodness knows I've certainly done my share and love and and. Um, Better, better for it, but there's a stage, I think, when you go through in therapy when you think, I'm going to get fixed, I'm going to be perfect, and I'll never be sad, I'll never be angry, I'll always have everything under control, and that's not true, and so I want to also dispel that myth and help people, including myself, confront our situation with a sense of humor, with self-compassion, and uh, with some tools and greater, and greater insight. I think that's true. I mean, one of the things you discuss in the book that I think is very true is that, you know, this this is a process. You know, it, it, you don't go from step A to, you know, step G and then you're done. 
you know, it's like, woo, you know, um, everything is always a process and it's, it's fluid and it's always moving. But let me get back to, to tips. So w- one of the things you talk about is that what holds us back often is limiting beliefs. So in your book, you discuss the triple J. So can you share with us what is the triple J and, and how does it sabotage our efforts? How does it stop us? Well, the Triple J is the nickname that I gave for that voice in your head. And I think if anyone's honest, they know that they have that voice in the head that says, what made you think you could do that? That was a stupid thing to do. How dare you aspire to that? Or you are really being a bad daughter or a bad mother when you do X, Y, or Z. And I call it the Triple J because it is like the jury that decides whether you're guilty or not, the judge who passes sentence, and the jailer who locks you up. So the Triple J keeps you from taking the action that you are able to take because it says that you're bad and that you shouldn't move forward. So let's talk about that as it applies to, um, I want to talk about three examples you give in your book. So one of them is something that I I hear often um, from caregivers, which is, and it creates problems because, you know, whatever your issues were with your parents, you bring with you and then you're caregiving often for them. and, And so it complicates issues. So one of the examples you give is my mother told me as a child that I was selfish. So? I must be selfish. Um, and that becomes a big issue with a lot of the people I see because it it gets them conflicted in in the care of of a parent because the minute they start doing something for themselves, they go back to that old myth of, oh, she to- always told me I was a selfish person, so therefore I must be selfish. So what's your advice for a situation like that? So one of the things is, we have to pull up into our full adult self uh, because that's the only part of ourselves that can see the truth is to say what is the evidence that would suggest otherwise. So you may want to think about your uh, relationships with friends, other places where you experience yourself as generous or people who have told you that you are generous so that you can embrace that you are generous. The second part is to not say I'm either generous or selfish, which which one am I and which one am I not because there's a whole continuum of generosity and selfishness. I think the other thing, certainly in, uh, in dealing with aging parents, is feeling comfortable in setting limits. And many times people who are so afraid of being selfish that they, are, that they feel uncomfortable setting limits. One of the things that I talk about in the book is When we know we have a a sensitivity, as it were, around selfishness or around anything else, we are likely to overdo on the other side. So I know a woman who has uh, some sisters, and the woman is actually very generous and very gracious in all of her dealings. But she was an oldest child, and so she was always told, if you're going to be good, you have to share, you have to share, you have to share. And yet she has a sister who is constantly making demands on her, and she feels uncomfortable when she has to say no, when she has to set a boundary. So one of the things I talk about is, and we can talk some more about it, is she's learned to recognize, oh, my sister has triggered this sense in me 
that if I don't give her everything, I'm selfish. And now she understands that she can say yes to some things and say no to others. She can say all of this, a little of this, or none of that, so that we have many more choices about what we say yes to. Does that the make other, sense? It makes a lot of sense. That One of the other examples you give, and this is a quote from your book, is my alcoholic parent made our home unpredictable. So now I need to control my situation no matter what. Yes, and... I'm sure you've seen this as a therapist. Uh, in fact, I've noticed that when I'm working with CEOs or, or other people who are employees, when there is that drive, drive, drive to control no matter what. If you're a child growing up in an alcoholic family, you never know what is going to happen. And it's a scary place, and you're just a little kid. So the only way... So that the way a child creates a feeling of safety is by controlling as much as he or she can. So they're not going to invite friends over. They will sort of tiptoe around. They'll try and be inconspicuous, but they'll try and manage everything so that mom or dad won't explode. You can have the same thing with a rageaholic or the same thing with somebody who has a a bipolar disorder. So they become very cautious because as a child... They didn't have control. What they forget is that now they're an adult and they have a lot of control and they create their own safety. But internally, they don't have that experience. It's, uh, you're probably familiar with the experiment on lightning bugs. They put lightning bugs in a jar with a top on it. And, of course, the lightning bugs can't get out. But even once they take the top off, the lightning bugs don't even try because they've come to believe that they are helpless. And there are lots of experiments. There's a, a, a psychologist named Martin Seligman who talks about learned helplessness. And that's, in many ways, part of the theory of why people who lived in scary situations who feel like they have to be in control continue to be in control. Okay, when we return, we'll be discovering what keeps these vicious cycles going on in our lives and ways to move on to better things. And I'm going to ask Elizabeth about one of my personal favorites, which is the Yippee Index. We'll we'll be right back. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Sarah Care. We provide daytime activities and health-related care for seniors who need assistance and support during the day. It is 101 activities at home by dinner. While we pride ourselves on the quality of our care, the Sarah Care Way sees beyond your loved one's needs to understand them as a unique individual. We care for individuals with chronic diseases, memory loss, stroke, Parkinson's disease, or those who may be feeling depressed and isolated. Our program is designed to encourage seniors to remain involved in activities of their choice, customized to meet their interests and abilities. Our outings include lunch at favorite restaurants and trips to the movies, concerts, or shopping at a cost that is less than five hours of in-home care. Your family member can attend one of our centers all day and be cared for by professional nurses and activity assistants. Transportation and financial assistance is available. Call 1-800-472-5544 today to learn how Sarah Care can help or visit us on the web at sarahcare.com. That's S-A-R-A-H-Care.com. 
your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. to Caught Between Generations. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Dr. Merrill at CaughtBetweenGenerations.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. We've been having a great time talking to Elizabeth Crook, who is the author of The Achiever's Guide to What's Next, Live Large. And she's been giving us great tips about the kinds of myths that, you know, come forward in our life and stop us from moving forward. Um, And now we're going to talk about ways to stop that. So, Elizabeth, I, as I told you offline, I love the quotes in your book. And one of them is from Anne Quinlan, who, and I'm now going to quote, the thing that is really hard and really amazing is giving up on being perfect and beginning the work of becoming yourself. And being perfect is an issue that we've talked about before in previous shows because it, it's one of the things that I find really is difficult for people and really holds them back. So people... We get ourselves into these vicious cycles. So, you know, can you kind of describe to us, you know, what those cycles are and and how do we stop them? (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) Well, a vicious cycle is just that. It's self-reinforcing. We do something, it gets a reaction, which then excuses our doing something else. So I worked with a woman, talented PR professional, and she said, it just seems like that I'm the one who carries the weight around here. I feel like I have to follow up on what, what everybody does, and I'm exhausted. I just never get any help. So when I heard about her story and where she had gotten recognition, she was an only child, and she got a lot of attention for being the star and for doing it all. And if she didn't do it all or didn't do it well, then she didn't get the attention. So guess what? When she did everything it, it motivated everybody else to do less. And the less they did, the more she had to pick up. And the more she had to pick up, the less they did. And so it became a vicious cycle. So the only way to break a vicious cycle is to, first of all, recognize that you're in a vicious cycle. And so if you, if you find yourself with the same kind of frustrations over and over again, I actually recommend that people draw it out and say, you know, this is what I believe. And her belief was, if I don't do it, it won't get done. And so then we drew a line, and she said, so I do it. And then what does that cause other people to do? So once you can see what that causes other people to do and, and take responsibility for how we keep our own vicious cycles going, then you can say, so how am I going to intervene this? Part of it may be through conversations. Part of it may be stopping doing the thing that you always do. Because you can't change other people. You can only change yourself. And when you change, other people will change in response. Maybe not right away, but they will. So what is then the value in in looking back? Because sometimes people will say, no, 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 that's really bad. You know, never, never look back. And yet you're saying there is value in looking back. I think there is. Um, have you ever been to a movie more than once? Yes. <laughs> and so when you go the second time, you can already see the direction that it's going. And when we look back, 
we get to see several different things, and that's why I have two different exercises. One that helps us develop, see the characteristics that we've developed over time, but the other thing, when we look back, we get to both mourn certain periods of our life as well as embrace other periods of our lives when we can see developmentally where we are moving and what we're going to and see what the turning points have been, then we can say, if I'm doing this sort of a, a, a lifeline, say, wow, I can tell I'm really moving into a next turning point. Or one of the things that happens before I get to a turning point is I frequently have a crash. Or, <coughs> excuse me, or uh, I can see that I have a pattern of become overly dependent on people and then I get disappointed. Or I have a pattern of when I, when I get focused and eliminate distractions, then I seem to have more success. We can see the themes and patterns that we have carried from way back when up until the present. And that's both our strengths as well as the things that tend to hold us back. So, Elizabeth, looking at moving forward then, I mean, you have many clients who are who are trying to evaluate kind of where they've been and, and where they're going to go. So, in, how do I come to the criteria for my success? How do I, how do I judge that? <clears throat> well, there are several different uh, filters, if you will, that help us get there. And one thing I've said is most people think that they have fewer choices than they actually do. So in one section, we really identify the characteristics. Another one, we look at, we, there are things that we know, uh, there are things that we know how to do, and there's a difference. Typically, the know what's have to do with the content of the business you're in or in the thing you do. You may know how to cook a dinner for four people and get them all fed and bathed and ready for bed by seven o'clock and then take on the next shift. But what you also know how to do is to manage, if you say that in terms of a know-how, multiple priorities with multiple deadlines. It's a project management kind of skill. And when we can see whatever we have done in terms of the process that's underlying it, that opens up whole possibilities. We also look at, at uh, what are the characteristics you want and what's next? Do you want to work on a team or not on a team or be the boss or not be the boss or travel or not travel. So we begin to create some additional criteria of what we're looking for. And then we also help people identify what their deep purpose is and what their deep talents are. When you can combine all those together, then you can say what are the possibilities that meet that, where all of these things could come together. And then once you know, we have in, those possibilities, then, then we're at a different stage of consideration. It's interesting to me because it would seem to me that one of the things then you have to do is you have to get rid of, you must, um, you, this is what you must do in your life. I mean, I one of my nieces was a very, very successful attorney, very successful. And she finally decided, you know what? I've had it. I'm not married. I don't have children. I can take a risk, uh, a financial risk. And she left it and became uh, what she always really wanted to become, uh, which was an author of children's books. Wow. Um, <laughs> I know. She's a great writer. She always was a great writer. Um, but, you know, her parents, who are wonderful people, felt as though she needed a way to support herself. Um, and so she ended up going into the law and writing briefs. Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, 
what she really wanted to write was children's book, and she now is an author of children's book, and and to supplement her income, does write some legal newsletters and that type of thing. So it's interesting. So uh, Elizabeth, we're all waiting. Yippee! So what's the yippee index? Right. Well, once you identify these possibilities, uh, then and I have people write them down in clouds because boxes suggest a a firmness that's not there yet. So when you look at these different possibilities, first you begin to evaluate with your head and say, what would be the benefits of this possibility for me? Or what would be the dangers or the risks or or the downsides of this? And then your last question is, which of these options makes me want to say, yippee, that's it. And so I just made up the yippee index because it's just on a, a, a scale of one to five, how happy and excited does this make? Because we make these decisions not just with our head and not just with our gut, but with a combination. And so the Yippee Index gives us a way of putting a number to it. Because even if something meets all of our criteria, but we say, oh, gosh, I don't really want to do that, we should keep looking for something when we can say, now that I'm excited about. Wow. So, Elizabeth, a little, as I told you at the beginning, a little personal issue. We're just going to backtrack just a little bit because we have just a minute or two. So talk to me about the softy hard ass because it's something that personally I deal with all the time. You know, as a therapist... And, you know, I want to help people. That's what I do, I hopefully. And and so I want to be a nice person. Running a business, running Sarah Care, it's not always possible. So right. talk to us a little bit about that. Okay, so I tell the story about a woman, very successful, like you are, and she said, you know, I have this employee who I feel, I feel like he's taking advantage of me because he's not paying attention, but I don't want to be hard on him. And so... I said, was there anybody in your life who was difficult? And she said, oh, my dad, he was a dictator. He was a real hard ass. And so I said, what you're suggesting is there are only two positions. You can either be a hard ass or a softie. And what we all have things that we, we would do anything rather than be. And in her case, she never, ever wanted to be a hard ass. And so if you perceive that there are only two options, A and B, then you're stuck. But what she came to understand is there's a whole range, a whole continuum from very, very hard to very, very soft, and that she could move between those two. Think of it as a long, long seesaw. But it's also in recognizing that for her and for all of us, when we move toward that end that, that, that we don't want to ever be, so when she got a little bit more hard-ass, she was going to feel uncomfortable and she would always probably feel a little uncomfortable. But that's when I talk about, that's the time to say, huh, I'm in that situation now, and I feel uncomfortable, but what I know is that I can place more limits on this situation and still be a good person, because that's Uh, what it comes down to. uh, That was so helpful. Elizabeth, give us your final thoughts and also your uh, contact information. Tell us about where to get the book? I will. I think my final thoughts are never compare your insides to somebody else's outsides. The best piece of advice I was ever given. And you can go to elizabethbcrook.com. You can buy the book from that site. You can go to Amazon or Target or uh, Barnes & Noble or to Hudson News and airports or to your local booksellers. And we certainly want to support them as well. I do a weekly uh, 
blog, short, frequently funny, irreverent, hopefully inspirational, <laughs> and um, and I hope you'll sign up and get it. When you get the book, you can go online and, as I said, download all of the all of the explorations which are in the book, but it just gives you a different way to work on them. I love to hear from people, and I want everybody to live large because if we're all living large, we can solve the world's problems. I believe that. Oh, we've been talking to Elizabeth Crook, who is the author of Live Large. Elizabeth, what is your blog? Quickly tell us. It's uh, elizabethbcrook.com, and you can sign up for it right there on the front page. Great. Elizabeth, thank you so much. You've been extremely helpful, um, and the book was great. So thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thank you, Marla. I appreciate it. Thank you. When we return, we'll be discovering uh, what, I'm sorry, when we actually return, we're going to be talking about quitting. Um, And is that always such a bad thing? I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. We'll talk about it when we come back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Where's your dad? What's he doing? You'd know if he was at Sarah Care Daytime Senior Care and Activities. You'd know he's enjoying a full day of cooking, computers, yoga, golfing, and he's home by dinner. You'd know Sarah Care LPN and RN Nursing Care is with him to ensure he gets the right medications at the right dosages. You'd know. How's your dad? He's just fine. At Sarah Care Daytime Senior Care and Activities. Call 330-451-6108 for one free day of care at Sarah Care. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN. The Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Listening to Caught Between Generations. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Dr. Merrill at CaughtBetweenGenerations.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Caught Between Generations. And we're we're going to be talking to Peg Streep. Now, one of the biggest sources of conflict between generations, I think, is the view on quitting or making change, especially as seen by millennials and versus baby boomers. So historically, when we discuss quitting, we, unless it's something that hurts us, such as smoking or alcohol consumption, you know, baby boomers especially view quitting as being very, very negative. Millennials really don't. Um, And so I see in families and I see in work situations that this disparate view of quitting just creates uh, just a lot of conflict. Our next guest, who I said is Peg Street, really doesn't see it that way at all. She is the co-author of the book entitled Quitting, Why We Fear It and Why We Shouldn't in Life, Love and Work. 
Network. Peg is the author of 11 books uh, on a variety of topics and is a blogger at psychologytoday.com. So thank, welcome to Caught Between Generations, Peg. Thank you for having me. So, Peg, quitters are seen, usually, I mean, in, in a really bad light. I mean, they're seen as losers. If you're a quitter, you're never going to be successful. Um, I mean, why do you think we view quitting as being such a negative attribute? Well, I mean, the reality of it is it's, it's a very American stance. That is, uh, although not it's, it's a stance, by the way, that's been adopted by many other countries, too. I mean, the reality of it is that um, founding this country and populating it, in fact, I mean, just think about getting from the East Coast to the West Coast before airplanes and trains, obviously required a tremendous amount of stamina and the ability to persevere. Um, and that generally, by the way, perseverance is terrifically important um, historically, it's very, very important uh, from an evolutionary point of view because physical tasks generally require that you persevere. That is, anything physical and even test-taking falls into the same category where practice eventually makes perfect and obviously deep in the history of humanity, um, those who would survive... Uh, hunting caribou were those who, in fact, were not discouraged by missing the creature they needed to eat, but, in fact, trying again, adjusting their arrows, adjusting their bows, and then finally bringing the animal down. So um, it's kind of culturally ingrained. That said, however, it's a bit preaching to the choir, because the reality of it is that human beings are actually hardwired to hang in. For all that we're always saying, don't quit, don't quit, don't quit, the likelihood of our actually giving up is relatively small because we have many habits of mind uh, that keep us in place. So you talk about, you know, in your book, you talk about cultivating the ability to quit. I mean, people, I, I, I think, would react to that. So why do you think it's so important to do that? Well, let me ask you a question. Okay. How often do you meet someone who says, I wish I'd stayed in that job longer? I wish I'd stayed in that bad relationship longer. Uh, I mean, yes. the reality okay. of it is right. we all tend to overstay long past the expiration date. And that's because human beings are fundamentally, and this, I'm using the word conservative, but not in a political sense. We are conservative. We don't like new things. We don't like the unknown. And in fact, we're much more likely to stay in an unhappy-making situation for longer than to pick ourselves up and go out into the future without knowing what's going to happen to us. And that's true in basically every area of life. I mean, it's true in terms of relationship. It's true in terms of jobs and career. Um, It's even true of moving physically. 
I mean, the neighborhood has to get really, really bad before you actually pick up and go. Um, And that's because most of our habits of mind uh, reinforce uh, this hardwired conservatism. Uh, Peg, you talk about goal disengagement. All right. Can you define that for us? And is this something you do just one time and you're done with it? Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. You know, when we, when we talk about quitting, the bad kind of quitting, we are thinking about somebody who is so angry and so upset and so disillusioned that he or she reaches that straw that broke the camel's back, right, and races out the door and the door slams. That, in fact, is a very bad way to quit because when you go through that door, you are carrying with you tons of emotional and psychological baggage, which you were bringing with you. Goal disengagement is the psychological term for the kind of healthy way of letting go of things. And again, it takes into account the fact that we're basically conservative, we don't like loss, we don't like new things. So goal disengagement is really a four-step process. Um, One is anticipating the fact that you're going to leave and anticipating all of the ambivalence and negative emotions that you are going to feel, right? Uh, Then the second stage is managing those negative emotions and amid all of that, coming up with a new plan for yourself and goal setting, The third part of that is the goal setting itself, uh, making sure that the goals that you want uh, and that you seek out are, in fact, realistic and gettable. That's really important. And then the fourth stage is actually going forward and getting yourself where you want to be. So it's it's really, it requires a lot of psychological management, uh, knowing who you are, knowing how you're going to feel. And that's true whether you leave a job or you leave a career or you leave a long-term relationship. Uh, People who quit and start over successfully have actually gone through a process. They have not stormed out a door. So let's let's take those four steps and apply it to something much more simplistic. At least it looks simplistic on the surface. But I can tell you from as as a therapist working with people that one of the biggest issues people deal with they they always talk about families but very often it's friends um and friends who just undermine a marriage friends who undermine a relationship with a parent they're they're just they undermine is what they do so Let's kind of go through your four steps in terms of of a relationship with a friend um, who is who is not helpful um, and who, if anything, makes you feel bad about yourself and is very negative. C- can you? Would you do that? Sure. Well, uh, part of the problem is first of all you have to recognize the toxicity, and um, particularly again, remember we're conservative. Um, and we tend also to be very overly optimistic. So, uh, A, you have to recognize that the person, in fact, is being either not supportive enough or perhaps downright abusive. 
or meddling. So first there's the recognition. Um, then, of course, what you have to do is you have to make sure that you can see it in an objective kind of way so that you know how you're going to manage your own feelings about it. Um, and again, part of our conservatism is that we are often motivated by um, not only being optimistic that things will, in fact, somehow magically work out, that you can have a conversation with that person and turn things around. But if the relationship is meaningful to you, I mean, again, if the relationship is not meaningful, then tossing that friend out of your life is no biggie. You know, it's over. Mm -hmm. Let's assume that that relationship, in fact, has historical depth to it. The person actually does have qualities that you care about, right? You've had moments together. Um, Part of this... Part of what keeps us stuck in those situations is not only that optimism, hopefulness, right? The desire to avoid a painful confrontation, and many of us are avoidantly oriented in that way. But then factor in a little something called intermittent reinforcement. Now, what happens, of course, is that what you really hope that your friend's going to be when you tell him or her about the problem that you're facing is you're going to have this very empathic person listening to you who's actually hearing you out. Now, intellectually, you know that the friend is not that person. (laughs) However, and here's where intermittent reinforcement comes in in all relationships. One day, lo and behold, you were talking about something and he or she sounds almost empathic. And you go, ah, we're turning a corner. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I shouldn't end this friendship. And of course, um, that happens not just with friends, but with bosses, with lovers, with husbands, with wives. Yeah, Um, especially in abusive relationships. But yeah, uh, well, even, even maybe not even abusive, but say that you're, you know, some of your needs aren't being met, that you don't feel as though you're being listened to, uh, or that your husband or wife isn't really paying attention. And suddenly, of an evening, there's this moment where, wow, he or she is really listening. And, of course, at that moment... You're in for a penny, in for a pound. Intermittent reinforcement kicks right in. Every doubt that you've had about leaving the relationship is tamped down. Suddenly, you're hugely optimistic. And, of course, there's fear of loss. So, there you go. You just bought another, I don't know, six to eight months of connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> basically, you know, and that's, and of course, all of this is happening outside of awareness. It's not an intellectual process. You know, it's not as though a bell goes off in your head and you say, oh, gee, I'm just like one of B.S. Skinner's rats. This is intermittent reinforcement happening. No, you're hearing what you want to hear. And that will glue your feet to the ground. 
Okay, we've been talking <laughs> to, yes, we were talking to Peg Streep, um, author of Quitting, Why We Fear It and Why We Shouldn't in Life, Love and Work. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit um, about framing um, as one of the keys to successful goal setting and accomplishing what we need. And you know what, we're also going to talk about the issue about letting kids or grandchildren quit. It's a big issue to think about. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. At Sarah Care, we provide daytime activities and health-related care for seniors who need assistance and support during the day. It is 101 activities at home by dinner. While we pride ourselves on the quality of our care, the Sarah Care Way sees beyond your loved one's needs to understand them as a unique individual. We care for individuals with chronic diseases, memory loss, stroke, Parkinson's disease, or those who may be feeling depressed and isolated. Our program is designed to encourage seniors to remain involved in activities of their choice, customized to meet their interests and abilities. Our outings include lunch at favorite restaurants and trips to the movies, concerts, or shopping at a cost that is less than five hours of in-home care. Your family member can attend one of our centers all day and be cared for by professional nurses and activity assistants. Transportation and financial assistance is available. Call 1-800-472-5544 today to learn how Sarah Care can help or visit us on the web at sarahcare.com. That's S-A-R-A-H care.com. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Caught Between Generations. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Dr. Merrill at CaughtBetweenGenerations.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. We're talking to Peg Streep, who is the co-author of Quitting, Why We Fear It and Why We Shouldn't in Life, Love, and Work. Peg, mental contrasting, can you explain that to us and, and how would that help us? Well, mental contrasting, again, one of the reasons that quitting has such a bad reputation is that often when people quit on the spur of the moment, out of anger and so forth. They go out into the world without a plan B. And, in fact, when you set goals for yourself, you have to be quite careful about the fact that the goals that you are setting uh, are realizable, uh, that they don't conflict with other goals, uh, and that you actually have the skill set to be able to achieve that goal. I mean, some of that, some pipe dreams are pretty obvious. That is, um, if I wanted to be a ballerina, I'm in my 60s. This is just not happening. We know that. Um, But people set goals for themselves all the time that are very close to pipe dreams. So it's very important that when you set goals, you use mental contrasting and you use what's called if-then thinking. 
So you say, okay, what I would like to do is get into an environment where there is more collegiality and less competition. And you Mm. use if-then thinking to formulate your strategy. So if you don't get the interview at one place, then you will do X to get the interview at another. In other words, you're you're honing your strategies and your skill sets as you move forward in order to achieve your goals. And um, that can be useful, by the way, in every, every area of life, whether you're trying to get a new job, uh, whether or not you're trying to revamp a relationship, uh, make it stronger, make it more communicative. Um, If-then thinking is very important. So let's talk about children, because one of the things you reference in your book, of course, is that child storybook that we all know uh, about the little engine that could, you know, and it's going up the hill and it's, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, you know, and then it does. All right. And we read that to children over and over again. Um, And it certainly talks about you know, persisting and perseverance to kids. I mean, do you think that there's a way to give kids balance to say at times it's okay um, to quit? You know, kids decide I want to do judo and then they're two months into it and they're like, oh, I hate this. I want to quit. And as parents, sometimes we say, no, no, no. You know, you made a commitment to this. You can't quit. You know, where do you think the balance is? Well, it's, it, it's, it's actually, actually, it's quite complicated, and parents really have to, I mean, what I would say is that the important thing is to not have a hard line. In other, in other words, don't draw a line in the sand and say simply, um, you can never quit. I mean, what does happen with children is often that the parent has made the choice of the activity believing that it would be good for the child and the fit is just terrible. And to require a child to continue doing something that you have chosen for him and her is not a very good teaching moment. On the other hand, if the child has, you know, begged and begged and begged to take judo and has reasons for wanting that and you've invested in the classes and, and the outfit and everything else, and the child is old enough, in fact, I would say absolutely. It's fair so, to say, look, you wanted this, we did this for you, and you're going to see it through. I mean, I think, it's, I think the important thing is to not draw a never line because it depends. So, Peg, do you think that it it's it might be wise to define ahead of time, you know, what is given enough time? I, I, I mean, I will tell you as a parent, that is a line that I used, you know, it's it's like, you know, 
you need to give it enough time. And and sitting and thinking about this and hearing this now, I wondered if what I really should have done is is kind of say at the beginning, if you really want to do this, that's fine. But we need to decide on a commitment. You're going to try this for three months, or you're going to try it for four months, or whatever it is. And then if it isn't working out, we can always make a change. I mean, do you think there's value in that? Absolutely. I mean, my my parents. Um made me take piano lessons. Oh, everyone's parents did beg. <laughs> I know, but you have really, in your life, never met anyone quite as unmusical as I am. <laughs> and this was torture. I mean, for one thing, my hands were not large enough, actually, to, and still aren't, to do a whole scale. So I have this European piano teacher who's hitting me over the hand with a stick as oh if this gosh. would make my hands more flexible and larger. <laughs> so <laughs> I can tell you from personal experience that sometimes, you know, um, and again, I have no idea why they lit upon my playing the piano. Neither parent played the piano, by the way. Um, <laughs> But I could have taken piano lessons for 20 years and it would not have made a bit of difference. Not one. Not one. So, I mean, I think it's also, I think it's not having a hard and fast rule on the one hand, but I think that if the child is old enough and making the choice, certainly to talk through a commitment, and I think that's really important with team sports too, because deciding that you, you know, you're tired of having mom drive you to the, or dad drive you to those soccer games when you've made a commitment to a team, that, that becomes complicated also. And that's an important lesson for a child to learn. That if you've decided to be part of a team, it's not just about you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's a case by case. Uh, and and it you know it should it should be if the child is old enough to participate in these activities, then the child's old enough to have you know uh, a discussion with his or her parents ahead of time, but to not make it a failure in character. We've been talking you know, the, to the child who doesn't like judo wants after three months to back out, that this isn't indicative of the child being someone who can't see things through. I mean, we are permitted to change our minds. I think that's a good line to end on. We are permitted to change our minds. Peg Streep, tell us about your blog, your book, how to get in touch with you. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> excuse me, I blog for both Psychology Today, uh, where my blog is called Tech Support, and I blog about mother-daughter relationships at Psych Central, where the blog is called Knotted, and I can (laughs) most easily be reached on Facebook, and it's just Peg Street Author at Facebook, and Quitting is available at Amazon and Barnes & Noble, um, and it's out in paperback. Peg Streep, author of Quitting, Why We Fear It and Why We Shouldn't. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us today. It was really valuable. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
Thank you. So my takeaway for today is I think the bottom line of today's show is that it's really important to get in touch with really what we're thinking and really what we're feeling. But in order to do that, we need to give ourselves permission to devote time to thinking about these kinds of issues. Am I really doing what I want to do? Do I need to quit? If so, how am I going to do it? It's a process, and often that process involves communicating with yourself so you need to give yourself that time to really think through what what you're doing and if you're doing it the way you want to do it Um, and if you need to make some changes so your one thing to do this week is to just think about these words written by Dr. Zeus which is you have brains in your head you have feet in your shoes you can steer yourself any any direction you choose Have a good week. Take good care of yourself. You're really important to a lot of people in your life. Thank you for tuning in to Caught Between Generations with Dr. Mel Griff. Our program is live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We hope to see you here next week.